Welcome, everybody. This is our third, this is our third all Edmonton service. Welcome to Westwood and UCE and friends from beyond. Welcome to the joint service of our two churches. My name is Reverend Ann Barker. I use she and her pronouns, and I have the privilege of being minister at Westwood Unitarian. I am co-leading this service this morning with our speaker, Jeff Bizance from UCE. We would especially like to welcome any visitors who might be with us today, and we invite you to join us for conversation in the breakout rooms once the service has ended. It's our virtual uh, refreshment time. The UCE on their website has an online guest book, which sounds like a really cool thing. Now Westwood's going to have to check that out. Uh, you're welcome to go there and, and check in that way. Now I'm going to pass it over to Jeff. We are a welcoming congregation. Our community is open to everyone without regard to race, gender, or sexual orientation, age, or income. You are welcome here. Or another way of saying this, in fewer words, is Tawa. Tawa means welcome in Cree. I've been told that a common translation is, there is room, which fits our circumstances today nicely. We gathered this morning on Treaty 6 land, a traditional meeting ground and traveling route for many indigenous peoples. A treaty is an inheritance, a responsibility, and a relationship. May recognizing our status as treaty people help us to be good neighbors to one another, good stewards of the land, and good ancestors to all our children. The theme of today's service is, what does it mean to do good? Maybe the answer to that question is obvious to you, maybe it is not. Either way, we might do well to give some thought to this provocative message from William Makepeace Thackeray. The wicked are wicked, no doubt, and they go astray and they fall, and they come by their deserts. But who can tell the mischief which the very virtuous do? Thanks, Jeff. If you have a chalice or a candle nearby, you might want to get it or watch the pretty one being lit magically on the interweb. These are the words of Starhawk. We are all longing to go someplace we have never been, a place half remembered and half envisioned we can only catch glimpses of from time to time, community. Somewhere there are people to whom we can speak with passion without having the words catch in our throats. Somewhere a circle of hands will open to receive us, eyes will light up as we enter, Voices will celebrate with us whenever we come into our own power. Community means strength that joins our strength to do the work that needs to be done. Arms to hold when we falter, a circle of healing, a circle of friends, someplace where we can be free. And if these words sound familiar to you, maybe you were at a service, a UCE service led by Karen Mills seven years ago. Our prelude today comes from local singer-songwriter Anne Reend and some amazing students at Sifton Elementary. It's about the need for change and the inevitability of change. Later this morning, we're going to talk about what kinds of change we want to make and who decides. Anne and these kids only had one rehearsal before they gave the performance you are about to hear. And by the way, I wanna remind you that dancing at home is strictly encouraged by the chief medical officer. I could feel it on the sidewalk, I could feel it in the news, 
over here. I don't know about the rest of you. Our starting hymn this morning is number 131, Love Will Guide Us, and Carrie Day has made this beautiful recording for us. Love will guide us, peace. 
And now it's time for uh, sharing our abundance. My name is Andrew Mills, and I'll do the sharing of the abundance. The Westwood Unitarian Congregation and the Unitarian Church of Edmonton are self-governing and self-supporting communities. They rely on your donations to support their staff and programs. During this unprecedented time, they need your financial support more than ever to maintain the connections with members and friends. There are a number of ways for you to support your church during these times. The best method is to set up ongoing automatic donations to your church. Contact your respective church office to set these up. Both churches are also set up to take online donations through canadahelps.org. Find the link on the church's webpage or go to Canada Helps and do a quick search for your church. Instead of using checks, both churches are also set up for Interact bank transfers. Set up your Interact transfer to the church office using their email, info at westwoodunitarian.ca for Westwood or chadmin at uce.ca for uce. Don't forget to share your abundance. For the month of May, the Unitarian Church of Edmonton has identified the Youth Empowerment and Support Services, YESS, as a cause to support. Please take time to send them some financial support through their website, which is yess.org. I also encourage you to remember to give to the local, national, and international charities that are helping others through this difficult time. Please give generously to sustain the work of your church and also to share your abundance with others that are in need. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. I let it burn till morning. 
The little lamp beside the bed Like a beacon or a firefly To light the darkest part of Mapped out plans in the ceiling crash Gonna leave this place and never look back Miles beyond this dust bowl city To the countryside all green and pretty The theme of our service is, what does it mean to do good? We will have two sermonettes with a community question in between. 
When we think of doing good for those who need help, we sometimes think of social justice and we sometimes think of charity, maybe charitable organizations like the United Way or just charitable acts like contributing to the food bank or providing food and friendship at the smile street parties outside the Hope Mission on Sunday evenings, which now are canceled because of the pandemic. Charity. A few years ago, a friend of many of you know, Charity Erickson, loaned me a book called Toxic Charity. Not about her, of course, but about how charitable acts sometimes make us feel good at the moment, but might have effects just the opposite to what we'd hoped for. The author, Robert Lupton, gives many examples in the book. One of the examples concerns Africa. I remember my grade six teacher telling me that Africa, the continent, was generally poor, but that it was self-sufficient for food. Those, that those two things could be true at the same time was a re revelation to the 11-year-old me. But Africa has not done well since. Lupton writes that Africa has received over $1 trillion in, in aid over the last 50 years, but it is now worse off than before. No doubt there are many things that have contributed to this situation, including droughts and politics, but many people believe that the charitable aid has not helped. Dambisi Moyo, an African economist and author of Dead Aid, found some years ago that 85% of the aid money to Africa never reaches the areas in need. She says that aid is, quote, the disease of which it pretends to be the cure. Lupton gives lots of examples. He wrote about mission teams from the U.S. that rushed to Honduras after Hurricane Mitch in 1999. They helped to rebuild homes at a cost of $30,000 per home homes that locals could have built for $3,000 each. He wrote about one campus ministry that went to Central America to repaint an orphanage. It turns out the money spent on that act of charity would have been enough to hire two local painters and more to buy uniforms for every student in the school. Lupton also provides lots of examples from his home city of Atlanta, where he has worked for decades as a Christian community developer in inner city neighborhoods. He has seen many charitable efforts fail. His conclusion, when we do for those in need what they have the capacity to do for themselves, we disempower them. Lupton is especially critical of what he calls one-way giving. He tells the story of being in a home with a low-income family on Christmas Eve. A well-dressed visitor family comes to the door to deliver Christmas gifts for their children, for the children. In all the excitement of children receiving gifts they, they didn't expect, no one noticed the father leaving the room, leaving the house. The shame of not being able to provide for his family was too much. This is an example of one-way giving. He contrasts this to thrift stores. Unlike giveaways, Thrift stores need customers to survive. The customers may, may be low income, but they have some power. Lupton talks about this as parity and says that parity is the higher form of charity as compared to one-way giving. Lupton argues that charity designed to do for someone is problematic. Doing for rather than doing with those in need is the norm. Added to the combination of patronizing pity and unintended superiority, and charity becomes toxic. Now, clearly not all one-way giving is toxic. 
Rapid charitable responses can save lives and restore communities in emergencies and disasters, such as forest fires and floods we've seen in our own province. Blood donations are examples of one-way giving that are important, along with contributions to the food bank. Locally, and in response to the pandemic, the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Matark Foundation combined forces to buy laptops for over 400 low-income families here in Edmonton. Laptops that make it possible for children to keep up in school through online instruction, for parents to apply for financial aid, and for families to be in contact with friends and family wherever they are. So again, not all one-way charity is toxic, but here's the problem. Often the emergency response continues for years when long-term development projects should take over. What's the difference? We can distinguish between betterment and development. Betterment provides immediate relief and as in the case of emergencies and disasters, can be critically important. Development is different. Betterment does for others. Development maintains the long view and looks to enable others to do for themselves. Betterment improves conditions. Development strengthens capacity. And of course, you can almost hear the next one coming. Betterment gives, man a, gives a man a fish. Development teaches a man how to fish. So there are different ways of doing good. Meals on Wheels, Food Bank, these are examples of betterment. The difference between betterment and developing development is interesting, and they both serve a purpose. The problem comes when the short-term strategy, betterment, becomes our only long-term strategy. This brings me to one of my favorite stories, and this, the story of the three sisters. You may have heard one form or the other of the story. It goes something like this. Three sisters were walking along a river. Suddenly they noticed that people were floating down the river, some drowning, some struggling to stay afloat. One sister jumped into the water and started pulling people from the water. And she called to the other two sisters, sister, sister, come help. Help me pull these people from the water. The second sister started to go to the water, but then she realized the people on the shore who'd been pulled out by the first sister, they were, the people on the shore were badly in need of attention. They were in shock. Some needed resuscitation, some needed warmth, or they might not survive. So she started to attend to the people on the shore. Then she called to the third sister, 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 come help. The third sister did not come help. Instead, the third sister ran up river to find out why people were being thrown into the river in the first place. Now, all three of these acts of goodness, all three of these contributions are important. No one can say that one is more important than another. The point is that there are many different ways in which we can do good. So how do we know when we do good? It's not so easy. I don't think that we want to deny whatever we feel when we're asked for money or help by a homeless person, by a child in tattered clothing, or by a well-intended charity. For charities, we can practice due diligence in researching the work of the charity. If transparency is lacking, that's a clue. But often we don't have that kind of expertise. For example, we're often told to look at the percentage of money a charity receives that goes directly to the target group as opposed to administration. If the percentage that goes to the so-called administration, administrative expenses is low, that's a good thing we're told. Well, hold on. If you see a low percentage, does it mean the charity is paying its own staff poverty level wages? Does it mean the charity is not paying to evaluate the effect of what 
uh, the effect of its work carefully to see whether it's having a real and lasting impact? What exactly does that low percentage mean? So whether we're giving to charities or just trying to do good generally, how do we know if we're doing good? It's hard to say. As for charities, Lupton calls them the compassion industry and says they need a sort of a Hippocratic oath like this. It's for charities, but maybe it's a pretty good guide for anything we do when we try to do good in our communities. It's called the oath for compassionate service. Never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Limit one-way giving to emergency situations. Strive to empower the poor through employment, lending, and investing. Subordinate self-interest to the needs of those being served. Listen closely to those you seek to help. And above all, do no harm. So I pose the question, what does it mean to do good? More is to come. But first, I ask that you reflect with all that I've discussed in mind on your own attempts to do good. Back to you, Anne. Thanks. Now, our congregational services have had an element of trial and error always, and especially over the last few months as we're learning our way around. This morning, we're going to try something uh, new again, maybe not new to us in practice, but definitely new online. So in the spirit of things, trying things that may or may not work, here we go. We're going to invite you at this point in the service to join a chat room to deliberate on a community question. So sometimes at Westwood, I pose a question, ask you to talk to your neighbor. Sometimes at UCE, you've had these community questions and you talk amongst yourselves for a few minutes and then you come back and there's more service. So don't sneak away. So here is the question. How do you evaluate your own attempts to do good? How do I evaluate my own attempts to do good? Well, I'm actually assisted in that partly by my circumstances. When I am attempting to do good, I can't really afford to make cash donations to organizations. So what I usually will have to do is go out and volunteer my time and my energy. And that advantages me in this point because I'm building a relationship with the target, with the people who are being targeted. And in the process of, of building that relationship, I can see for myself if it's helping. So that's my two cents. I think for myself, I look out and there is a, a bottomless pit of uh, need for the doing of good. So I feel the need to be um, deliberate in my choices about where to put resources. So um, obviously some of that money goes to Westwood. <laughs> some of that time goes to Westwood. Although that has less to do with doing good and more to do with just contributing to the community that I belong to. And then I look and I try to find a balance between farther from home and closer to home and doing what Jeff was talking about in terms of an immediate response versus things with a longer-term impact. And if I'm having a flush year, then I support something cultural as well. <laughs> this reminds me of two different things that I've experienced. And one was a sociology course a long time ago where a part of the term was dedicated to a comparison of the historical underpinnings of you know um, growth in Edmonton and Calgary, where 
where Calgary is more uh, focused on individual charity and philanthropy and Edmonton Edmontonians have traditionally been more interested in seeing tax dollars, you know, uh, government. Anyway, that I'm losing my train of thought there. Uh, and the other thing is from a time when I was the client services coordinator at the food bank and, uh, and we had many people from well-heeled Edmonton, I'll call it, come in uh, to work on the phone lines. Uh, it was just, it was just a really interesting balance of instances of genuine compassion and availability to do whatever might be helpful and an awful lot of probably unrecognized superiority. My contribution, thanks. Over the years, I have uh, allowed myself with organizations like the Unitarian Service Committee, which is now Seed Change, which is trying to save heritage seeds from people like Monsanto, who is trying to uh, patent uh, heritage seeds and also the uh, Child Haven and uh, the one that uh, uh, Change for Children, and also the Lumbini Buddhist uh, um, Girls School in Nepal, that I actually know the people who are connected with those organizations, and I really feel that uh, I can check their balance sheets and so on and know what's going on with them. There is also a book by Alvin Finkel called Compassion, and uh, it talks about the history of charity across history and how the advocates for uh, government uh, coverage for social justice issues and care issues for people uh, had its nucleus in that system. So it's a very interesting read if someone wants to read that. As a hairstylist, and how I serve my customers. We are delayed in our reopening due to equipment. I know I talked to my, my, my head office and they were saying that, because I asked them about, you know, can we have a new sign for the door? Can we, is there a way we can contact our customers? So that way, basically figured that way we don't lose contact with them. Because I know our economy was struggling to begin with before this all hit. And so, as stepping up sort of, I don't want to say behind their back, but kind of when I asked if I could give contact information so that way customers can contact them and find out, you know, how things are going and this and that. And they said not at this time. So I've been sort of calling certain various clients myself that know me. And so kind of letting them know on, on my end. So I'm sort of doing good, but I'm like, it's sort of a iffy situation. Like, am I going to get in trouble for, for doing <laughs> this type of good? <laughs> right. So I hear you saying you're using your own conscience to evaluate how you're going to do good, even when the organization isn't, the, isn't doing what you would expect them to do, too. Yeah. Okay, we're back to the, the big question here. What does it mean to do good? If we are trying to do good, we have to decide what changes, what the changes are that we want to see. And if change is already happening, as Anne Green and the kids from Sifton Elementary say, then who decides what those changes are, and what they will be? My next sermonette is inspired by another book, Winners Take All, by Anand Jirhardas. The subtitle is informative the elite charade of changing the world. 
The issues in this book are more complex than in toxic charity, and I can't do justice to the book in a few minutes. So I will focus on only a few parts of the message. For the whole, though, I recommend the book to you. The front piece of the book captures the author's essential meaning quite well. It's from Tolstoy. I sit on a man's back, choking him and making him carry me. And yet I assure myself and others that I am sorry for him and wish to lighten his load by all means possible, except by getting off his back. That's Tolstoy, late 1800s. So the core message of the book is not new. How it presents itself is, however, and it all bears on the question, if change is happening, and if we want it to be good, what do we do to make change good? There are four parts to the argument that Jerry Hardas makes. The first is we live in a time of massive and growing inequality. You've all heard this story. The author illustrates it with some contemporary American data. Quote, the average pre-tax income of the top 10th of Americans has doubled since 1980. That of the top 1% has more than tripled and that of the top 0.001% has risen more than sevenfold, even as the average pre-tax income of the bottom half of Americans has stayed almost precisely the same. Rich American men who tend to live longer than average than the average citizens of most any country now live 15 years longer than poor American men who endure only as long as the men in Sudan and Pakistan. And not surprisingly, this growing inequality leads to a sense that the rich are getting richer on the backs of those with low income, which in turn leads to increased levels of anger and frustration. Of course, this issue is not just an American issue. We can see plenty of evidence in our country and in other areas of the world as well. The second point he wants to make uh, is that elites are taking charge of this inequality problem. Not all elites, of course. He writes that uh, some elites faced with this kind of gathering anger have hidden behind walls and gates and on landed estates, emerging only to try to seize even greater political power to protect themselves against the mob. But in recent years, a great many fortunate people have also tried something else, something both laudable and self-serving. They have tried to help by taking ownership of the problem. Think of the Clinton Foundation, the Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the big companies of Silicon Valley that are trying to use their vast resources to improve the world. What could possibly be wrong with this? Well, it all depends on how it's done, which brings us to the next point that Jirahadas makes. The emerging elites who seek to address the problem of inequality do so using the tools and concepts that help them to become elite. The most common element of their approach, Jerry Hardas writes, is what he calls the win-win strategy. The basic idea is this, you have a problem, I have an app for that. I can sell it to you and we're both better off. Win-win. Let's take an example. One problem many people have is maintaining a stable level of income that keeps them above some line, like the poverty line. This problem seems to be on the increase now with the so-called gig economy. People are working on short-term, often part-time contracts with no benefits and no security. These are jobs that typically provide income, but not careers. Lacking a stable income, it's hard to manage your finances. Some months you have enough, but other months you do not, and getting by is hard. 
A California company developed a cell phone app for that. It's, it helps you establish how much you need each month. You make more in a, in, one, in a given month, it puts the surplus into an account automatically. If you make less in a given month, it withdraws the amount you need from that surplus account and makes it available, easy. And you can buy the app for just a few hundred dollars per year. It's a win for the person in need and a win for the company that makes the app, win-win. The key characteristics of this simple example are that the problem is clearly defined and the solution makes use of technical expertise and conventional market economics. The basic idea is that educated and wealthy and compassionate elites can identify a problem for their less fortunate brethren, and then they can find a solution that benefits their brethren and themselves. And all this happens using existing market mechanisms. It's wonderful incentives for creativity and profit. We don't have to change the system. We, can, we just have to direct it. The solution can come from what uh, Gerhardus calls the market world. Now, the example I just gave is one small example of how the market world works. In the book, Jared Hardas gives us all sorts of examples of small companies, big corporations, and huge foundations taking just this approach. What could possibly be wrong? Well, a couple things. One is that the solutions typically address a specific difficulty, but not the more general underlying problems. To go back to our app example, good. It helps people with unstable incomes control their finances a bit better. That's excellent. But what does it do about why their income is low and unstable in the first place? Does it address low wages, the lack of benefits and job security and sick leave, outsourcing the inequitable effects of deindustrialization? Does it address any of the day-to-day -day difficulties many low-income families have with discrimination, predatory lending, and poor access to transportation, childcare, and healthcare? Or does the app, like many fixes, just make the current situation more tolerable while still producing profits for some? As one investor in the app company described this particular win-win strategy, quote, to put it crudely, it's bribing the population to be well enough off. Otherwise, they'll work for changing the system, okay? Unquote. Now this view is not new. Oscar Wilde had something to say about it 130 years ago in England. Quote, just as the worst slave owners were those who were kind to their slaves and so prevented the horror of the system being realized by those who suffered from it and understood by those who contemplated it, so in the present state of things in England, the people who do the most harm are the people who try to do most good. That's Oscar Wilde. Another problem with the market world win-win approach is that the process is profoundly undemocratic. Who makes the decisions about what the critical problems are and what kinds of solutions make sense? Are the people on the low end of the wealth distribution making those decisions? Typically not, Gerhardus says. That's not how the market world works. A quote. Market world is an ascendant power elite that is defined by the concurrent drive to do well and to do good, to change the world while also profiting from the status quo. Its elites believe and promote the idea that social change should be pursued principally through the free market and voluntary action, not by public life and the law and the reform of systems that people share in common, that it should be supervised by winners of capitalism and their allies and not, by, and not antagonistic to their needs. 
and that the biggest beneficiaries of the status quo should play a leading role in the status quo's reform. So do the elites of market world see the issue this way? Well, as Upton Sinclair sagely noted, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. The Baha'i Universal House of Justice has something to say about the, about the issue of who decides. According to the Baha'is, justice demands universal participation. Thus, while social action may involve the provision of goods and services in some form, its primary concern must be to build capacity within a given population to participate in creating a better world. Social justice is not a project that one group of people carries out for the benefit of another. The fourth point is that this whole business takes us to the issue of public versus private benefit and the role of government. A fundamental tenet of the market world approach to doing good is that the government, government can't solve important problems. For 40 years, we've been hearing some version of what Ronald Reagan had to say about the matter. Quote, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem, unquote. Bill Clinton said it. Ralph Klein said it endlessly. And it seems to be a basic tenet of our current provincial government. And indeed, we can, go, we can point to lots of examples of how governments have screwed things up. But does that mean market world is a better option? Remember that governments have provided important advances in many areas, healthcare, social security, human rights and freedoms, public education, research and development, responses to pandemics. It's important to imagine that market forces could have, or even would have, provided these advances. So when it comes to figuring out what it means to do good for large-scale social and economic problems, do we rely on market world and, and contribute as we can, or do we engage in the messy and difficult process of making democratic governments work as they should? I suspect the answer is both, that markets are good for some problems and that governments are good for other problems. How do we figure out which problem gets which solution? So I've posed the question, what does it mean to do good? It's a question for us as individuals, it's a question for us as a community, and it's a question about the kind of society we want to have. I've not answered the question, and I've added more questions. So my job is done. So now I'd like to turn to a reading. And in preparation, I'd like to say, um, I hope you're questioning now what it means to do good. I don't have an answer that works for, for all the time, all the time for me, let alone for you. But it would be a mistake to leave this assembly thinking that because the question is difficult, we should not try to do good. As you use, we affirm and promote a whole list of things that we can all agree are good, such as justice, equity, compassion, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and the goal of the world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. So in try to, trying to sort things out, let's take some guidance from one of our UU elders. I am only one, uh, Edward Everett Hale wrote, but still I am one. I cannot do everything, but still I can do something. And because I cannot do everything, I will not refuse to do the something that I can do. Back to you, Anne. Thanks, Jeff. 
Our final hymn is number 128, For All That Is Our Life. flame in the chalice is now extinguished. Let's close with the words of Tagore. I slept and dreamt that life was a joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was a joy. Now let's mute ourselves and join hands electronically. And, the, and in the tradition of the Unitarian Church of Edmonton, let's sing Carry the flame.